20 years ago, I helped start a band that I ended up getting kicked out of, that would go on to put out three albums in four years, tour 14 countries, and shed band members at an alarming rate. Imagine the most perfect pop songs you've ever heard, and that you might never hear the same four people playing them again. They inspired many artists who went on to great success, but could never find it for themselves. The relentless drama, heartbreak, and disappointment demonstrated again and again anything that could go wrong would go wrong for our intrepid crew. From having backs turned on them by the scene to scattered major label dreams, they saw it all. My fascination with their saga led me to create this podcast, a humble tribute to the kings of no hope. This is the story of the stereo. Last episode, the stereo came closer than ever to being called up to the big leagues, but fell short of getting signed to a major, and just to really rub it in, the label showing interest completely collapsed after passing on the band. It was a bitter disappointment, but stereo frontman Jamie Wolford, bassist Chris Serafini, and drummer BJ Willette could take solace in the fact that they'd just made a truly great album for Fueled by Ramen Records. Rewind and record. The groundbreaking LP proved that a rock record on a tiny indie label budget could sound just as huge as any made for a major. It was time to push on, move ahead, find a sixth person to fill out the consistently hard to maintain guitarist position in the stereo, and play some shows. I talked to Jamie, Chris, and BJ about rounding out the lineup, knocking the rust off, and getting back up to speed. We needed another guitar player at this point. I brought in a guy named Thomas Laufenberg. Amazing guitarist. Totally not from our world of like punk rock and whatnot. He is a little older than all of us, which is amazing. <laughs> Based on how old I am. And that was the thing where it was like, okay, well, now we're going to go to Europe. And so he joined the band. He and uh, Serafini flew up to Minneapolis. And it was basically a matter of Serafini going, he'll, he'll be fine. And by this point, we had started the, the tradition that the stereo has pretty much done ever since of warm-up shows where we play in some random club, but we play under a pseudonym. We played one as a band called Troublegum, and the other one was called El- <laughs> Elven Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> We've played as El Stereo. We've played as the bringer of pain to your face. <laughs> you know, we just play secretly just to kind of get the work out any sort of live kinks before we go play as the stereo. And that way, if we, if we do have a complete meltdown or we suck, we're like, hi, we're Elven Wolf. The stereo had booked another European tour, this time with a completely new lineup. The first trek across the Atlantic had ultimately led to Jamie firing all the other members and rebuilding the band from scratch. And this was the first chance to rewrite some of that painful history. Unfortunately, new obstacles would replace the old ones. And the band would find itself coming to terms with unexpected chaos and gut-wrenching decisions while far from home. We flew into Germany. We played with um, rival schools. Uh, and then we, but the, the full, the most of the, the full tour was done with a band called Everest. And that was a, like when we got there, that was the first chunk. And then we would sprinkle in like some festival shows here and there where they weren't playing. And then Les and Jake is who we met up with in the UK to play a couple of shows, which, you know, ended up going sort of badly. For me personally, uh, 
I, I drank a whole lot, for sure. There was a lot of drinking in Europe because there was beer everywhere. Like, everywhere you went, there was just beer. There was always, there was always beer to drink. I, I, had, I had known BJ for a long time at this point and, and, and spent many a mile at his side with Animal Chin and, and now the stereo. And BJ sort of becomes a different person when he drinks. And I think Serafini was like, this is, you know, I know BJ would kind of party back in the States, but this is a bit nuts. You know, this is every day. So it was tricky because Les and Jake, they were like family to us. Uh, Vinny owned the label we were on. We get to the first festival that we're playing with them. And he kind of calls us all together and has like a powwow with us. We had a, a, a very good friend out on tour with us. And he was the one who wore the, the clown mask and a skull mask and things like that, right? Vinny Fiorello, drummer and lyricist for Less Than Jake and co-founder of Fuel by Ramen Records. And I had heard some rumblings about uh, his ex-girlfriend that they just recently broke up with, that dude... Uh, from the stereo at the time was like talking to and going to visit and all this. And I told those guys, I, I this th- do not mention this. This is like, is going to be a ruiner. Apparently one of their guys got his heart destroyed by this girl who lived on the West coast somewhere. And BJ may have had some relations with her like beforehand before that. And he basically said, Whatever you do, do not bring her up to this guy. Please, like, just like, let's get through this and just let's let it sell, right? And it'll work out later. It'll, you know, work itself out. Fast forward to, we did a show in London with them. We played the forum. We had a bad show. Um, we had like gear trouble and, and we were not doing a good job of being a band that night. We just had the opening band blues kind of thing happen, you know, bottles were being thrown, bottles were making contact with my head. So we ended up playing probably only like seven songs or whatever and sort of like, you know, walked off the stage with our tails between our legs. And Jamie had some family in between our guitar player, Thomas had his wife with them. So they wanted to kind of do their own thing. So BJ and I decided to jump on the Less and Jake bus, which was a double-decker, and roll overnight with them, which included partying, drinking, carrying on, which was great fun with those guys. I mean, they were, they were all about having a good time. I wake up uh, to their tour manager. I'm sleeping on like some bench seat upstairs to him yelling at the top of his lungs, Hey, asshole! Get the fuck up. You're out of gas. I just remember specifically, he kept saying, you're out of gas. And I mean, I had no idea. I was like, you know, fuzzy and probably a little hungover, kind of trying to put it together. And so I get up and BJ's gone. they They kicked him off the bus. And then he explains to me what happened. Dude was partying and partying a little too hard and, and, you know, dropped, by the way, this is what's going on, and this is how I feel, and and made this grand statement of romance, but at the same time, poisoned the well, man. Apparently, BJ got annihilated, which he, he had been known to do, and decided to tell this guy 
that he's still in love with this girl and basically like just just pissed on the one thing they asked for. That night, I remember holding a grown man crying and wailing about his broken heart. I get to the show, you know, the next day. We sort of roll up midday and I see Serafini and he's got a look on his face like, we need to talk. And I'm thinking, where's BJ? He's hurt. You know, what What happened? He's like, no, BJ fucked up. Next day, here it is. You guys are either not on this tour or you continue to stay on this tour, but dude has to come in, play the drums, and then leave. But the hand was forced. It was silly, man. Like, I, I never understood why, why dude had to go there. They weren't going to, like, screw our band in the sense that they were going to, like, you're one dude fucked up, but you're all fucked. You, all of you can fuck off. Um, however, in that moment, Vinny looked at me and said, I know we have like a string of dates coming up together in the U S like we had like a week or something or a week and a half with less than Jake in, through the Midwest would have been a great tour for us. He's like, I will personally pay for a replacement drummer for you to do those shows. Here I was as the person who signed off on having the band be there. Right. Uh, not only the drummer uh, of the headlining band, but the guy who went, Hey, I have this band. I'm releasing their record. Uh, I, I want him on this tour. It makes total sense. And as soon as I saw that situation unravel how it did, uh, I was shook. I, w I went, I don't know if this band is the band. I know Jamie's the dude, right? I know Jamie's Jamie, and I, uh, my confidence in his talent and his songwriting abilities uh, and that X factor, right? Like I, it, That was never shook. But I went, mate, this is not this is not what it's going to be to take it over the finish line. We ended up having two days off after that. We dried out and sort of had a band meeting and and we decided to rather than remove BJ from the tour and get a replacement just to do that tour, we decided that it would send a good signal to BJ and to each other that we would take beer and alcohol off of our riders, basically ban alcohol from the band. And the way we would bow out of that tour with less than Jake. I don't know if we, maybe it was a, a, a desperation attempt to maybe get him to pull his shit together based on the fact that, look, we just stood behind you in a, a very huge way with this band. And as people, it's your turn. It tore the fabric of our band in a way that we never really got over. After another trip to Europe that cast a dark shadow and months of grinding the states on tour after tour, the stereo needed a new plan of attack if they were going to maintain some sense of sustainability. Working on a new album would help the members recharge and get their bearings before deciding on the next move. Or that was the idea anyway. But in the end, the plan that was designed to shore up the band's foundations would lead to its ultimate collapse. Let's do this. Uh, let's have BJ come down and just sort of spend two months in Arizona, just sort of couch drifting, 
between us and friends and whatnot. I moved to Tempe and I lived with a friend. I, well, I stayed at our practice space for quite a while. And when I was down there before tours, that's where I lived, was on our practice space at our friend Aaron Wentz's house. I slept on a slept on a cot in front of a drum set in a windowless room, so like you couldn't ever tell what time of day it was. But you got to understand, it was it was I was used to living that way. I lived in a fucking van. He comes down and like the first night, he goes out and like buys like a twelve pack and like demolishes it that night. And it's like very clear that he's not stopping. And BJ basically turned it into like a full tilt party. And he kept telling us how much he hated being in Arizona. And we're like, well, this is kind of, you don't have to live here. We just, this is how we need to do it. And it was hard for me to stomach because I spent so much time in Minneapolis. And I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't live there. There wasn't enough. Like, and also I think, I think the three of us all knew that like it wasn't happening. Like what we were trying to do wasn't going to happen, man. Like we weren't going to make it. But like we had just burnt out these saturated markets that our shows were dwindling. Um, it just wasn't, it wasn't going to happen. And it was definitely not enough for me to say, well, I'm going to move to Arizona, a place that I don't want to live in. We end up, started playing, we played one show and at the end of the show, BJ tells me and Serafini, it's by the way, it's been about almost two weeks that he's been in Arizona and the plan was for him to be there for two months and to work on the record, maybe start recording the record, whatever, you know, he goes, yeah, I got to get back to Minnesota. And he's just like, this place sucks. I'm leaving. You need to get me a ticket. Like as soon as possible to get out of here. I want to go home. I'd hear a lot of stories. I knew where he was staying at like one of two different places. And these people were all good friends of mine. And I got a, had a call from my, my buddy who was living with his girlfriend and he basically called me and said that BJ made a move on her. And that's where I snapped. You know what I mean? Basically like, okay, now you're coming here and just shitting on my, my life. Serafini shows up at my house the next day, comes over and he said, I'm out. I quit. I'm like, what? He's like, I can't handle this guy. He's like, he's just, he just ruins relationships with people. He's ruining his, he's ruined his relationship with me. He won't stop drinking. He's got no commitment to what we're trying to do. He's like, I don't want that. Like, we're going to do a band. Let's do a band. But if we're not going to really do a band, like I got to get my life together and whatever. I'm not, I'm not moving forward with this. It, It was definitely me. I was the one who came, stepped up and said, this can't happen. And Jamie and I sat down and he said, I agree. Uh, uh, but if we're going to cut that cord, that's it for the band. I can't emphasize enough how important Serafini is to me, not only as a friend, but as a, as a member of my band. He's now literally like my lifelong bassist. <laughs> you know, I will, <laughs> I will not get another one. I don't like this, this cycling through people thing. And now I'm going to lose Serafini. So now it's going to be me and BJ. And I'm like, no. It's not like we, this came out of thin air. Obviously we had had discussions with BJ about drinking and keeping his shit together. And, and he just kept slapping us in the face. So, I mean, when the final decision was made, we basically, we already bought a plane ticket. 
I remember we like it was like uh, we were standing outside. He was staying with a friend of ours. He's staying out uh, at this apartment complex, and we sort of walked down to this grassy area, which actually was the sign, and just our and broke up our band. We basically said, "Look, things are not going well. I'm he quit. I and if he's quitting, I'm I don't want to do this." And so it was like party's over, right? Essentially, the the, the sentiment was the party's over. As people are sometimes prone to do when the party ends. Some people leave politely, gracefully, just grab their stuff and go. Other people trash their way out of a party. And unfortunately, the latter is what BJ did. So Chris and Jamie and I met up and, and had the ultimating conversation and walked away from that. And then I went to, I went out with some friends and I met up with none other than Mr. Dan Keyes. And, uh, I think okay. Re- Recover I understand. Recover was on tour with the Get Up Kids, maybe? Sure. And so I, I went to the show. I went to the show. I went out with them afterwards. I got sloppy drunk, and then those guys were just saying, it was like the, we got your back, dude, kind of night. Like, fuck those guys. And and, uh, <laughs> okay. and then I had, like, posted that shitty thing on our website. And I definitely regret that. You know, like, there was a lot of... Um, there's a lot of hurt feelings. There's a lot of mixed emotions that night. And so I, I went home and I t- typed up this thing and I put it on the internet. And then I woke up and went, oh, God, what did I do? We woke up the next morning to a barrage of emails and my home phone number and address got posted like in this forum talking about, you know, BJ had basically written this statement that got the, that you know, the sort of the punk press had picked up. I remember at one point... Um, BJ, who played drums for the stereo, wrote this huge missive, you know, just reaming the whole band, the new asshole, and blah, 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 right? Scott Heisel, former managing editor for Alternative Press. In a way, it was thrilling because it just, it, you know, you felt like you were kind of like in on a secret a little bit. Like you're watching like this crazy reality show kind of thing unfold, but it's not for a mass audience. The culture of punk at that point was not like very dramatic and it just felt tiresome. You're like, man, like this is like, why can't this band just exist? Like, you know, and it's one of those things where it almost felt cursed in a way. Like you felt exhausted, like uh, trying to follow the stereo. And people were calling me in the middle of the night and whatever. Just, it just turned, it was like a a, a several days of just like, you know, my girlfriend at the time was like scared, you know, like, I was like Are people going to come here. And I'm like, no, we're not going to come here. It's just people just being shitty right now. I'm pretty sure it made Jamie put his ha- head in the sand for a while. Like he, Jamie and I stopped playing for at least a good year. I mean, he, he shredded the band. Yeah, I'm not proud of it by any means. If I could go back and undo that, I would, but I can't change it. But, uh, you know, it's something I would, I would take back. In a heartbeat, if I could, mostly because it was pretty damaging to any sort of relationship that I had with Jamie after that point. And then that was the end of it. And then, and then the next thing I knew, I was hugging Jamie at an airport. And we were crying, and I was on, on a plane going home. And I gave him a hug, and I said goodbye. You know? I, 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 didn't, I wanted to punch his lights out, you know, but gave him a hug. I actually had tears in my eyes, and I sent him home. Do I wish it would have went better? Yeah. Definitely. He was, he was a great drummer. He was definitely one of the funnest drummers that I've played with. And I feel like he and I rhythmically connected 
very well. I'll say a lot about BJ, but one thing I won't say is that he's not a great musician. He, he is a good drummer and unlike a lot of drummers would hear the rest of the music as he played. Not every drummer is good at that. They sort of, their band sort of begins and ends around the carpet that the kid is on. <laughs> and then he would play parts that were complementary to that concept. For me, the stereo ending in a messy, ugly, and very public way feels like the inevitable, equal, and opposite reaction to years spent glossing over and trying to put a positive spin on the drama and turmoil within the band. I'll give you a quick example. In an FAQ from the 2001 version of the band's website, the frequently asked question relating to me getting kicked out of the band is, why did Rory leave the stereo? In regards to three quarters of the band getting fired the next year, it's, why did JT, Jeremy, and Eric leave? The answers are essentially accurate, but the questions themselves warp reality to make everything seem more amicable. This is how the band operated. And while everyone involved wishes that the final act went down differently, the fact that it happened out in the open meant that there was an element of catharsis and truth that had been actively avoided up to that point. In March 2004, this is how the stereo came to an end. Now, let's fast forward to 2011. Fuel by Ramen Records had seen much success in the intervening years, and to celebrate the label's 15th anniversary, they decided to release a commemorative book and put on a star-studded show in New York City. It was going to be headlined by Paramore with support from Fun and other FBR acts. The Stereo were asked to come out of retirement and play as ambassadors of the label's formative years. It was a truly amazing turn of events, and perhaps even more amazing was Jamie asking me to rejoin the band for this one-off show. We got to bury the hatchet and celebrate the band that we had christened at a Vietnamese restaurant in Austin way back in the 1990s. The joy that we had in repairing that burned bridge, it would end up being in sharp relief against the reactions of some of the other former members. I talked to Chris about how it all went down and Jeremy Tapero about how being left out affected the reconciliation that he had only recently begun with Jamie. I remember getting the offer and was like, wow, kick ass. Uh, absolutely. And then immediately going, wait a minute. Tapero was the only one that, that I felt a little strange about because he and Jamie had mended the fence pretty well by that point. I end up calling him and I'm like, dude, I just read about this. Like, I think we should call Burgo and call Rory and go do this shit. Like OG stereo lineup. Let, let's go. And he was kind of like, a first just stuck like, uh, and then, you know, at some point he was like, well, we, we are going to, play this thing. I mean, I don't remember exactly how the plan got hatched or whatever, but I do remember sitting down talking about you saying, why don't we just try to get this as proper as we can? I mean, that was, I kind of left that up to him. Sorry, Jamie. And I was just like, wow, that's fucked. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know when you reunite a band, like you try to reunite the band, not like put together this new lineup that was never a lineup with one guy who was never in any of the lineups. At that point, we were playing with this this guy named Sam, who hands down was the best drummer Jamie or I had ever played with. J 
Jamie and I would very regularly have a conversation about how shitty it was that this guy didn't come around 10 years ago. Yeah, and I, you know, it was just, there was things in the conversation, like I remember Jamie saying, like, it just makes sense to do it with Sam because it's so much easier. Mm. And I remember being like, that's what reunions are about, like ease. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was just kind of like, yeah. do I hate Jamie Wolfer now? Like, no, I don't. But do I, do either of us need to like go out of our way to like be friends or what? Like, I don't really think either of us need that either anymore. You know what I mean? Like he's, he lives there. I live here. I, I remember hanging up the phone like, well, that's it. Like this is officially like now I'm done with Wolford. That show was amazing for me. And if I'm honest, it was the first time that I ever played in the band where the vibe around it felt 100% positive. But perhaps it's appropriate that even after years of mending broken relationships and looking back at tumultuous times through the lens of nostalgia, the stereo couldn't play one show without breaking someone's heart. One thing that stands out to me as I listen back to this interview is how Jeremy put it all on Jamie, and I just let him. The truth is that I was part of those conversations, and I advocated for Sam to play drums. But Jamie has always had the reputation of being the bad guy, and it's just easier to say nothing and let that assumption ride. This willingness of everyone to let Jamie own the fallout for a decision that you either actively or passively played a part in, I think that contributed to his bad reputation. It was probably one of the elements that held the stereo back. I started the series with one question, what happened? And many I talked to shared their thoughts on why the stereo never broke through. It's, it's almost fitting that the band name is ungoogleable. They were a band ahead of their time. They were a band out of time. There was no other scene that they could fit in. You know, they were the pioneer, right? The pioneers get the arrows, the settlers get the land. Never had a hard time booking shows and getting out there, probably to a fault. There was certainly a point where the band toured too much. You could tell that kids started reaching a point where they didn't show up at this show because they're like, well, they'll be back in two months, so... We'll just we'll just catch we'll catch them then. I mean, I think as soon as you exited the band, I think that that was a huge shot in the foot. I think that the people that liked that band liked the original. I mean, the whole concept was the stereo, the left channel and the right channel, and you and Jamie, and you have different sound songs and sounds, but they're similar enough that they you know you guys complement each other, and it all made sense. And when you when you went away and it became the Jamie Wolford show. Uh, I think it made a lot less sense for a lot of people. I kind of was in a similar place with fun too in the early days of fun where it was like you think especially like I grew up, you know, really like worshiping Brian Wilson and like the this ideal of like perfect pitch and things just really like locking in and like achieving sonic perfection. And then the older you get, the more you realize nobody cares. Like people just want to have a good time and hear something that they like and like sometimes things don't sound sonically perfect and that's what's cool about them like you do want to sound great you do want to be professionals but also like you can't lose the heart it's it's crazy to think that uh i'm using the term they because they decide what's going to hit nine times out of ten bands fail they all fail but one in ten that just are too stupid to stop are the ones that usually succeed I just think you guys are criminally underrated and you guys have always been like a band's band in my eyes. You know, when people say to me, 
how come's never how come uh no one's ever heard of the stereo and i went well you have heard of the stereo you just heard the influence of the stereo on a half dozen bands that became infinitely bigger than they did i i looked at fallout boy and stereo in a very similar way they were they were both bands that i love that i listened to a lot but yeah, I don't know why it, it didn't work for the stereo, but it did work for Fall Out Boy. I think it just predated the zeitgeist too much. It was just a little bit too early on what what people were going to do. I was telling everybody about it. I wore a stereo shirt, you know, on stage for for years. It, you know, I don't know. It's it's almost like a like a pop rock shape of punk to come or something where it's like, well, everything is going to sound like this in five, ten years, but no, no one knows about it yet. You know, it's just too early. So after all the reminiscing and researching, talking to people involved throughout the history of the stereo, what's my grand unifying theory for why the band never reached a bigger audience? Perhaps like Patrick Stump had said, it was just a matter of timing. If the band had just been on Fuel by Ramen a few years later, they could have been swept up in the label's success. It might have been the series of disasters that seemed to follow the stereo around, or the unforced errors that were made by a revolving cast of characters and kept the band from ever finding the elusive big break. Maybe even if you've got successful bands saying that they stood on your shoulders to reach great heights, it doesn't mean that you're ever going to see the surface. There are probably countless stories like this one. Bands that inspired artists who went on to greatness and are only ever spoken of by the ones that they influenced. In the end, I think all of those things are true. But when it comes to the stereo getting in their own way, you can't ignore the one constant throughout the band's saga. Jamie Wolford. And how over and over again, Jamie either actively assumed or was cast by others in the role of the villain. Jamie was incredibly ambitious in a scene where unbridled ambition was supposed to be abhorred. Musicians who found success coming out of the underground music scene clearly pursued gratification, but you weren't supposed to look like you were. He was driven and determined in a way that was considered seriously uncool. And as he told me time and time again in the interviews for this story, he simply did not care how anyone felt about that. He was sober, he was vegan, he could be aggressive and confrontational, and he resented it when others took the work that he was putting into things for granted. It led to rifts and divisions with all the other members in a band that he was trying to lead. Members who at times just wanted to live out a rock and roll daydream of getting signed and getting girls, a fantasy that probably seemed like it shouldn't be such a pain-filled struggle. Back when this was all happening, I used to think that Jamie's problem was that, for him, the ends always justified the means. One time, way before we started the stereo, his band Animal Chin were on tour, and they opened up for my band The Impossibles in our hometown of Austin, Texas. I was in charge of paying the opening bands, and I gave Jamie what I considered a generous amount of money for an opening act at the time. He took it, he said thanks, and then he asked me if we could possibly pay them more. Now, to be fair, they were probably in a tough situation, needing our show to be the payday that would help get them enough gas money to finish the rest of their tour. He wasn't a dick about it, but it just felt like the sort of thing that other guys and other bands that were concerned with keeping things cool wouldn't have done. I didn't tell Jamie that it bothered me at the time. I just paid him more money. After Jamie kicked me out of the stereo, I thought about that night a lot. 
I imagine countless interactions with other bands, promoters, or managers where Jamie's calculation was about what he needed in the moment and not about how it made them feel. I told myself that kicking me out of the stereo was short-sighted on his part. And when the band ran into challenges or fans pushed back on lineup changes, it felt satisfying to have that narrative in my head reaffirmed. It made perfect sense to me that the end result of all those selfish decisions was a chorus of people left in his wake who were all ready to disclose, either publicly or privately, that Jamie Wilford was an asshole and supporting him or his music was a mistake. But if there's one message that I'd like to end on, it's that if that were ever true, I don't think it is anymore. The owned mistakes, heartfelt apologies, and deep regrets that Jamie talked about in our interviews align with who I understand him to be today. He's a father to four kids. He's devoted to his wife in a way that puts most of us to shame. My family and Jamie's family, we took a vacation to Disney World a few years ago, and it was awesome. I've spent a lot of time with him in recent years, and I've come up with a new theory. I think he took all that ambition and drive that used to rub people the wrong way, and I think he's applied it to an entirely different goal, learning empathy. Jamie's sincerity literally brought me to tears while I was editing the interview where he talked about how bad he felt for kicking me out. Out of everyone that I've talked to, all were willing to own some actions they regret in hindsight but no one has owned up to what made them ashamed with the kind of deep and careful consideration that Jamie did. He's not a different person, but he's managed to take all the raw creative talent that he's always possessed and pair it with an understanding of people that simply wasn't there 20 years ago. And so it got me thinking. At the end of this long journey, with both of us having loved, lost, and grown up, Have we come back to a place where together we could make music as the stereo again? Thank you so much for listening to Kings of No Hope. We've got one more bonus episode coming your way where I'll be joined by Jamie, Chris, and Sam to discuss our new album, 13. He's like, hey, I got a wild idea. What's that? He's like, let's do a stereo record. Look out for the new album Friday, May 13th, after our final bonus episode of Kings of No Hope, the story of the stereo. Kings of No Hope is written and produced by me, Rory Phillips. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at RoryATX. The Stereo are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Stereo Rock. You can listen to The Stereo on Spotify, Apple Music, or by getting your best friend to make you a dupe on their dual cassette high-speed dubbing tape deck. <laughs>